Are you ready to revolutionize the way you enjoy food and essentials at home? Introducing DashPass from DoorDash, your ultimate ticket to convenience and savings. With DashPass, you gain exclusive access to unlimited $0 delivery fees on eligible orders, along with members-only deals and discounts that will leave your wallet smiling. Whether you're craving the flavors of your favorite restaurants, need groceries from across town, or anything in between, DashPass ensures that everything you need is just a few clicks away, delivered right to your door. With DashPass, not only do you enjoy $0 delivery fees, but you'll also benefit from lower service fees on eligible orders, making it the most affordable way to satisfy your cravings and stock up on essentials from your local favorites. What I really love is how quickly DashPass pays for itself. On average, it takes just two orders, which makes it a no-brainer investment for your budget. And as if that weren't enough, DashPass grants you special access to exclusive promotions and menu items, adding an extra layer of excitement to your DoorDash experience. You get all this for only $9.99 a month, which is a small price to pay for unlimited convenience and savings. My family and I have had DoorDash for the past year or so, and while I make most meals at home, I don't know that I could mom without it. I used it twice just this past week while we were dealing with a stomach bug at home, and it was so nice to have and to be able to focus on getting better and not running all over town to pick everything up for everyone. Don't wait. Sign up for DashPass now and unlock a world of possibilities, all from the comfort of your home. DashPass from DoorDash, delivering joy, convenience, and savings straight to your doorstep. Get more from delivery for less with DashPass. $0 delivery fees and reduced service fees on eligible DoorDash orders. Sign up for DashPass today and get your first 30 days free if you're a new member. Subject to change. Terms apply. Open the door to $0 delivery fees and savings you can't get anywhere else. Sign up for DashPass today, only on DoorDash, and get your first 30 days free if you're a new member. Subject to change, terms apply. guys and welcome to the moms and murder podcast a true crime podcast featuring myself mandy and my dear friend melissa hi melissa hi mandy how are you i'm doing great i'm happy to be back in florida where i belong yeah good i'm glad glad to have you florida looks good on you yeah i think i actually brought some cooler weather with me um it was so nice today but i think that was going to be the end of it so tomorrow we are back to 80 degree weather and that is more characteristically Florida. I know, but we all got our sweaters in today and boots and just whatever we could to just really live it up today. It was a nice run. Yeah. It was a nice yeah. run. Yeah. Yeah. I was out of the house all day and everybody I saw had on like boots up to their knees and scarves and it really wasn't even that cold, but, no. <laughs> <laughs> but it was actually beautiful outside. But uh, you take advantage of it when you live here, whatever well, you can get. Yeah. We'll take what we can get. Exactly. So we're going to get right into the case this week. Um, We actually have another case that was um, written for us by Mary Jane Jarman. She's coming in clutch again for us this week. Mary Jane, you're awesome. Way to go, Mary Jane. um, What does coming in clutch mean? I see this in your notes. You have never heard this phrase? Wait, is it like fetch? Are you trying to make clutch happen, Mandy? (laughs) (laughs) This is already an established phrase, Melissa. (laughs) For young people, Mandy, we you've hit you've hit this mark where we cannot go around using these words and people taking us seriously. You've hit that. You don't want to be there, but you're there. You're with the rest of us. I'm sorry. (laughs) This is your life now. 
you have bad bones and your back hurts for no reason all the time. This is just it. It's true. It's true. It's true. Okay. So moving on. We're just going to skip past all of that and move right on. All right. (laughs) Thank you very much, Mary Jane. You're awesome. And this is such a great story. So today we're going to be talking about Sean Goff and his two wives. Uh, That might sound a little strange, but we will explain all of it as we get into this story. So Sean Goff was a computer salesman and a San Diego youth minister in a non-denominational Christian church. He was a charismatic, handsome man with a beautiful wife and a little boy. By all accounts, he appeared to have the American dream. He preached about the Bible and its teachings and encouraged his congregation to live by the teachings while he himself did his best to also live by the Bible's teachings. He also kind of tried to live by some more controversial parts of the Bible, and um, that's a huge part of the story today. Uh, He believed in what was called Christian polygamy, and Mary Jane wanted us to make sure we put it in in the episode. This is in no way affiliated with the polygamous sects of the Fundamentalist Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. Sean's belief in and justification of polygamy comes out of the Old Testament, citing ancient prophets such as Abraham and Jacob and kings Solomon and David. So Sean's first and only legal wife, Sheila, married Sean in 1990. Together they had a young son. She was very resistant to the polygamous lifestyle, but Sean was very persuasive and he convinced her to go along with this. He was well known for being misogynistic and controlling, and he believed that women could not survive without the leadership of a man. But he didn't consider himself uh, misogynistic, uh, but he just had a patriarchal role with all of the women that he really interacted with. Yeah. So this is very different from Sister Wives, where they all already knew about um, <laughs> about polygamy and all of them wanted to be a part of it. And, and ev- love multiplies. Love is multiplied, not divided. Yeah. Mandy, you watched that show? I have before, yes. I freaking cannot take it whenever I make references and you like come in hot and I'm like, where did this even come from? (laughs) I thought I was going to be judged so hard for that. That's so refreshing. Cody Brown and all of his wives, who, by the way, if you live in Las Vegas this week, they are having an open house for all of their homes because they are moving out of the cul-de-sac. This is a hot take that will be over. Oh my gosh. Melissa, how hard is it to sell one house? And they're selling four and they're never going to get what they put into Mary's wet bar. I can tell you that much. So moving moving on. So sorry. So Sean's second wife, Joy Risker, was only 16 years old when he met her. He was her youth pastor and Sean befriended her. Keep in mind, she is a 16-year-old. And Joy came from a a home of two divorced parents, but she lived with her mother, Gwendolyn, in the North Park area of San Diego, California. And Joy's father was an electrician for the Navy, so he was often not around. Joy and her mother were more like sisters or best friends than mother and daughter. They didn't have any other family around, so they really leaned on each other. When Gwendolyn heard of her relationship with Sean, she wasn't very happy learning that he already had a wife and a young son, and I'm sure she wasn't thrilled that that was also her daughter's youth pastor. She certainly didn't agree with the polygamous lifestyle she saw her daughter getting into. Joy insisted she was very happy and loved both Sean and Sheila, and so then her mother reluctantly gave her blessing because she didn't want to lose her relationship with her daughter, which that's very understandable. You want to keep your relationship with your only kid. Like that's, they just had each other. You're not going to do anything to really jeopardize that. So Joy and Sean were married on the beach in 1997 when she was only 19 years old. And to avoid any bigamy charges, no marriage license was filed, so the ceremony wasn't actually legal. Sheila and Joy got along great and shared the housework and the job of looking after the children. 
Joy and Sean had two little boys together, and Joy and Sheila were both cooperative and obedient wives. They all lived together in a two-bedroom, single-story home in the Kensington area of San Diego. And I guess housing is expensive in San Diego, but two bedrooms for all those people. Oh, my gosh. Yeah, that's a lot of people and a lot of relationships in that small of a space, you know? Yeah, yeah, exactly. I guess you have to do what you have to do, but man, my goodness. So Sean married for a third time in the year 2000. Um, He was actually pressured by a fellow Christian polygamist to take this woman named Sharon as his third wife. Sean realized that marrying Sharon was a huge mistake on the cross-country drive to bring her home, which I guess if you would have just realized this like (laughs) just a day or so before, um, that (laughs) that would have been a good quite a revelation. Like I'm bringing her to live with us forever and oh my gosh, I hate her and she will not stop eating tuna fish in the car. Like (laughs) (laughs) what went wrong there? Yeah. So he felt obligated to make it work out with Sharon and he kind of stuck it out. Joy and Sheila did try to welcome Sharon into the family. However, they said that they often heard strange and kind of awful noises coming from Sharon's room and said that it sounded like Sean was trying to perform an exorcism on her. How did Sharon get her own room? They live in a two-bedroom apartment. I have no idea how she had her own room. I'm more invested in that part of the story than the exorcism that was apparently (laughs) taking place. Maybe they moved. I don't know. (laughs) So Sean had told his other wives that Sharon had multiple personalities, and she ended up leaving the family just eight months after they had gotten married, which I guess wasn't really a surprise to me um, after finding out that he didn't really want to be with her on day one. So... She lasted eight months. Congratulations, Sharon. Uh, So the family seemed to be getting back to normal after the chaos that was left in Sharon's wake. In that same year, Joy's mother, Gwendolyn, passed away. In September of 2003, Sheila took the three kids up to Santa Barbara for the weekend so that Sean and Joy could be alone to work on their relationship. When Sheila returned with the kids, Sean said that he and Joy had broken up and that she hadn't taken it well. Sean apparently told Sheila that Joy needed to, quote, shape up or ship out. He said that she took off and went to Europe with an old boyfriend she had reconnected with. That is quite a whirlwind of a story he's saying there. Like, yeah, we're working on a relationship. We broke up. Also, she went to Europe. A lot of things to happen in a very small amount of time while she's away for the weekend. So friends noticed that Joy had abruptly stopped calling, emailing, and communicating with them all together. They were starting to worry, so they called and emailed constantly until they got a reply from Joy. She sent her friend Jill an email that had an uncharacteristically angry tone, saying she was fine and in Europe, and she would contact her friends when she was ready, but for the time being, she wanted to be left alone. Joy was a bright and bubbly person, and her friends were convinced that something happened to her because she would never run off and leave her children behind. Joy's friends started calling Sean and demanding explanations to where she had gone. He told them the same story of running off to Europe with an old boyfriend and added that he had spoken to her and that she was just fine. Jill and her other friends said that Sean appeared to be emotionally distraught, but the house appeared as though she had never lived there. Any evidence of Joy had been removed. That would be very, very strange. So her friends continued to call and email demanding that she contact them so that they could hear her voice for themselves and verify that she was okay. They said that they knew about Joy's problems with Sean and that she was in fact planning on leaving him, but they didn't think she was going to do it quite this way. They knew there wasn't another man and that she would not leave without telling her family or the rest of her friends. They never got a reply to these emails, so her friend Jill ended up calling the police to file a missing persons report. They had kind of also said that 
Joy, like when they had gotten the one email back and she was kind of angry and was just like, leave me alone. I'm in Europe. They, you know, they were like, well, that's not right. Like a friend. And if you think about it, like really anyone's friend, if you know your friends are really concerned about you and worried and just want to like hear your voice and know that you're okay, like you're not going to respond to them with, you know, an angry tone and be like, I'm fine. Like, leave me alone. You know, I feel like you would. And that's what they said about her. They said like she wouldn't be angry that they were you know, concerned about her. Even if she's angry at him and they had this big breakup, she's not mad at her friends. Like they're, they still love her and care about her and want to know that she's okay. So Jill did not buy Sean's story, um, kind of because she knew what a controlling and misogynistic person he was. And she doubted that he would just let, um, Joy run off and go to Europe with another man, like without putting up some kind of like huge fight. So San Diego investigative aide Linda Cousin was assigned to the case. Linda started her investigation by first giving Sean a call and he in response to this he forwarded her an email that he had claimed Joy had sent him where she was explaining that she had run off to Europe with an old boyfriend that she had recently connected with from high school. Linda contacted all of Joy's friends and searched her cell phone records. This is where she discovered something suspicious. All of the activity on Joy's phone um, was fairly consistent until it came to an abrupt end on September 19th, 2003 at 9.36 p.m. And the very last call that was in her call log was made to Sean. So before we get into what happened next, we're going to take a quick break for a word from this week's sponsors. Hi, guys. We are talking about our friends with Poshmark again. For those that don't know, Poshmark is an app where instead of buying things new, you can shop from millions of closets across America. Last week, I mentioned that I had ordered a pair of pink low-top Converse shoes. I actually ordered them on a Friday and got them that next Monday. I knew shipping was fast with Poshmark, but I didn't know it could be that fast. Also, I'm super obsessed with my new shoes, and I'm almost passing for a fun, cool mom. The Poshmark app is free and so easy to use. Plus, Poshmark carries women's, kids, and men's styles. And Poshmark has tons of brands you can shop from like Marc Jacobs, Express, and Ann Taylor. I currently have my eye on a pair of J. Crew blue leather suede shoes priced just at $39 and they are regularly $110. And you can also check out my closet at MAM Melissa. I'm going to be parting with some old dresses that I have in love, but honestly, I never wear them. They're just sitting around and taking up space when I could sell them and buy some blue suede shoes. And I know with Poshmark that shipping is easy for both the buyer and the seller. So I'm really looking forward to selling my closet. Listeners of Moms and Murder get $5 off your first purchase. Just enter the invite code MURDER5 when you sign up. That's invite code MURDER5 at sign up. Are you ready to revolutionize the way you enjoy food and essentials at home? Introducing DashPass from DoorDash, your ultimate ticket to convenience and savings. With DashPass, you gain exclusive access to unlimited $0 delivery fees on eligible orders, along with members-only deals and discounts that will leave your wallet smiling. Whether you're craving the flavors of your favorite restaurants, need groceries from across town, or anything in between, DashPass ensures that everything you need is just a few clicks away, delivered right to your door. With DashPass, not only do you enjoy $0 delivery fees, but you'll also benefit from lower service fees on eligible orders, making it the most affordable way to satisfy your cravings and stock up on essentials from your local favorites. What I really love is how quickly DashPass pays for itself. On average, it takes just two orders, which makes it a no-brainer investment for your budget. And as if that weren't enough, DashPass grants you special access to exclusive promotions and menu items, adding an extra layer of excitement to your DoorDash experience. 
You get all this for only $9.99 a month, which is a small price to pay for unlimited convenience and savings. My family and I have had DoorDash for the past year or so, and while I make most meals at home, I don't know that I could mom without it. I used it twice just this past week while we were dealing with a stomach bug at home, and it was so nice to have and to be able to focus on getting better and not running all over town to pick everything up for everyone. Don't wait. Sign up for Dash Pass now and unlock a world of possibilities, all from the comfort of your home. Dash Pass from DoorDash, delivering joy, convenience, and savings straight to your doorstep. Get more from delivery for less with Dash Pass. $0 delivery fees and reduced service fees on eligible DoorDash orders. Sign up for Dash Pass today and get your first 30 days free if you're a new member. Subject to change. Terms apply. Open the door to $0 delivery fees and savings you can't get anywhere else. Sign up for Dash Pass today, only on DoorDash, and get your first 30 days free if you're a new member. Subject to change, terms apply. And now, back to the show. Alarm bells were going off in Linda's head, so she confronted Sean about the fact that he neglected to tell her that he had spoke to her that night, and that she had not, in fact, made further contact on her cell phone. Sean at this point felt a little bit cornered, so he revealed a few more details, and he told Linda that his first wife, Sheila, had taken all three kids to Santa Barbara for the weekend so that he and Joy could enjoy at a romantic dinner at the Hotel Coronado in efforts to rekindle their relationship and salvage their marriage. Sean said that after dinner, they had gotten into an argument, slept separately, and the next morning, he woke up to find Joy leaving the house with two-pack suitcases and getting into a car with another man. That feels like it escalated so quickly. Like, yeah, yeah. <laughs> like to go to Europe. We're not talking like she left him for some guy down the road, but going to Europe, like that's that's quite a bit of a, you need a passport. Are you just sitting yeah. there with a passport? You know? That would have been like a really, really, really bad fight. Right. <laughs> yeah. So it wasn't long until Linda started punching cannonball-sized holes into Sean's story. Joy, for one, didn't have a passport. How could she possibly be traveling to Europe without a passport? And who was this mystery man that she had supposedly run away with? Well, Linda found him in Boston, and he was shocked and had no idea what investigator Cousin was talking about. Linda Cousin was now convinced that there was definitely foul play involved, and Joy was likely the victim of possible homicide. So yeah, they find some guy. She must have been talking to somebody or, you know, reconnecting on some level with an old friend, but that guy's in Boston. Like, what's he going to do? And and she's obviously not there with him. Investigator Linda Cousin had gathered enough information at this point that she was able to get the homicide detectives involved. So in a crazy twist, Sean Goff showed up at the police station at this point and said that he wanted to confess to detectives. Um, he spoke to detectives Vale and McEwen, and on tape, he confessed that he had killed Joy. But as soon as the detectives began pressing for more details to the confession, Sean suddenly just clammed right up and demanded that he have a lawyer before he would say anything else. So the detectives at this point are obviously very confused and, you know, they wanted to kind of figure out what would be his motive to come into the station and confess to this murder, but then like lawyer up and not say anything else. Which, yeah, that's a little strange. If you are coming in and you're saying, like, I want to confess to the murder, well, you would expect that you're going to want to tell the whole story. Otherwise, why wouldn't you go to an attorney first who would then direct you to the police? Yeah. Yeah, it didn't really make any sense. So Sean insisted that he wasn't confessing to murder and he was challenging the police on semantics and asked again for a lawyer. 
So police had no idea if Joy had been murdered in cold blood or if there was simply some kind of accident that had led to her death, and Sean was not going to talk about any of it. The police wanted to know what had happened and where they could find Joy's body. Sean refused to answer any questions. He did state that he wanted to confess because he wanted to be quote, right with Christ, and he was tired of lying to so many people. He, you know, says that at this point, he's now confessed that he did kill her, not giving out a lot of details to the police, but he told the detectives that he felt 25 pounds lighter after he had confessed this murder. I'm so happy So you can take that. Yeah, you can just take that for what you will. So the frustrated detectives booked Sean for homicide and set out to gather evidence to try and piece together what exactly had happened to Joy. Detectives turned the Goff home upside down looking for evidence and found blood spatter in Joy's bathroom, confirmed to be hers through DNA. What had Sean done with her body if he had, in fact, killed her? All this time, he was in jail and absolutely telling them nothing. And like Mandy said, what's the point of confessing if he's not going to really say where she is or, you know, what happened to her? Like, why say anything if if there's no real resolution here? So while the San Diego detectives were looking for evidence in the homicide of Joy Risker, a few people had come across a strange stone monument deep in the Arizona desert close to the Mexican border under a Palo Verde tree. And don't tell me if I got that wrong. I'm just trying, guys. I'm really trying as hard as I can. (laughs) So so a camper came across it and wondered who would build such a monument in such a secluded place where no one was really likely to see it. The camper didn't investigate much and moved on. The monument did, however, start attracting attention. An old desert hand and former hunting guide, Reuben Condi, came across a stone structure and quickly became disturbed by it. As a hunter, he knew what decomposition smells like. And from what I understand and what we remember from the Casey Anthony case, it smells like there's been a body in the car. Remember, Cindy Anthony said it like 50 times on the yeah. um, thing. And that was a big thing that was in her case. Once you smell it, you'll never forget what that smell is. So Condi's son was a federal ranger with the Bureau of Land Management, and he came out to investigate after a call from his father. On January 10th, 2004, the ranger moved a few stones and saw a body. He couldn't tell if it was a man or woman, young or old. He didn't know if this was some sort of tomb paying tribute to someone's loved one or if it was something else. It was so carefully crafted and built in the middle of nowhere. Condi and the ranger contacted the Maricopa Sheriff's Department to come extract the body. The remains were dug out and sent to the medical examiner's office in Phoenix for an autopsy. Dr. Glenn Wagner was the medical examiner for Maricopa County at the time and conducted the autopsy on the unidentified woman. Very little soft tissue remained and no organs were present in the remains, but Dr. Wagner was able to identify two drugs in her system through toxicology. One was a sedative known as promethazine and a narcotic, codeine. So I've actually taken this combination of drugs before in the form of cough syrup. I used to get bronchitis a lot when I was um, a teenager and in my early 20s, and they would always give me promethazine with codeine cough syrup. I feel like there could be an explanation for why she right. would have that and, you know, why the why the body would have that in the system, you know, not like a sinister right, right. explanation. So Dr. Wagner asked for the help of Dr. Laura Fulganitti, and she was a forensic anthropologist, and so she was going to examine the remains. As forensic anthropologists were experts in identifying bones, Dr. Fulganitti soon determined the bones were those of a young African-American female. She could further determine that she had given birth at least once and that she had met a violent end, having been stabbed at least 12 times in the chest. 
The bones of her face had been completely smashed by blunt force trauma, probably to conceal her identity. And as Dr. Fulganetti continued her examination of the body, the detective present during the autopsy suggested that she look at the hand so that they could possibly get fingerprints. But they made the horrifying discovery that the fingertips had been just uh, cut clean off. Even worse, her teeth had been removed. There was nothing to identify this body. No dental records, no fingerprints, and DNA identification on such a decomposed body was very unlikely, although they did extract a sample just in case. So this case was, of course, in 2004, and DNA technology was still in the early stages. It was nothing like what we know it, you know, know it to be now. Right. So this was a Keith Morrison dateline, by the way, and he was like full hardcore like extra Keith Morrison. I don't know if you noticed he in was. the beginning, he <laughs> explained Joy and uh, Sheila's relationship. He said they were as different as chalk and cheese, which <laughs> I wrote it yes, down immediately. Keith, those things are very different. It's like, wait, what? <laughs> I had to rewind it to make sure I heard that right. So as D- Keith says in this Dateline episode, they had to go back to the drawing board Literally. So Dr. Fulganetti utilized the help of forensic artist Detective Bob Powers to construct a drawing based on the skull that they would painstakingly put back together piece by piece. And so they showed this, like they just have this, you know, skull and they're taking like, not putty, but I don't know anything about art, clay almost, and trying to build the features and stuff. Um, It was incredibly fascinating to see that. So they were finally able to create a sketch based on this, but months went by and no one recognized her. Detective Powers, by sheer luck, came across a missing persons poster and thought it looked like a sketch. So much so that he actually contacted that family for a DNA sample, but unfortunately it didn't match the missing woman in the sketch, which I thought they actually looked a lot alike. Um, they did, Joy yeah. and this lady. So it didn't seem like this guy was just fishing for nothing. So in the summer of 2006, Joy's body was finally identified through DNA three years after she had been killed. Sean Goff was finally going on trial for murder. So in the trial, um, we have Deputy District Attorney Matthew Greco, and this is his very first murder trial. And he had to convince the jury that a murder had occurred in the first place. Um, So... Sean had confessed to killing Joy back in 2003, but he refused to give up any other details until he had consulted with an attorney, as we talked about earlier. So he hired a high-powered defense attorney named Albert Arena to represent him, and his defense would turn out to be, of course, the typical self-defense Um that was what he was going with. That was his de- his defense was self-defense. So the defense was saying that Sean and his first wife, Sheila, had considered Joy a drain on the family, and they had planned on giving her an ultimatum. Sean would even testify that Joy was abusive to her sons, and he had planned on telling her at this wonderful dinner that they were going to have that their relationship was over. He claimed to have pictures, um, which he said were Polaroids, of the kids with bruises on them, but there was never any such photos uh, introduced into evidence or anything like that so maybe they existed maybe they didn't Um, when they had returned home from the dinner Sean testified that Joy had appeared in the bedroom doorway in a rage with a knife in her hand he claimed that he had told Joy that because of the abuse he was going to keep the children away from her and because of this she flew into a fit of rage and attempted to stab him Sean explained that they struggled for the knife and during the struggle is when Joy was stabbed which would be believable if she wasn't stabbed 12 times. That doesn't seem, you know, like an accident. And of course, there was no wounds or signs of struggle visible on Sean. 
He didn't think the police would believe his story of self-defense and proceeded to chop off her fingers with a meat cleaver and use a saw out of the garage to cut out her teeth. He then rented an SUV, loaded her body into a container, and drove to Arizona to dispose of it. Before building the huge rock structure, he used a large lava rock to... This is very graphic, but he, like, smashed Joy's face with a rock. And they think that was, of course, to further conceal her identity so that, you know, they wouldn't be able to find out who she was or what had happened to her. And the defense summarized that the killing of Joy Risker was simply an accident in a misguided attempt by a father protecting his sons. This infuriates me so much because... It's all putting the blame on her and she's not it there is. to defend herself and there's no yeah, evidence it is. to back any of this up. Um, one thing they talked about in the trial is uh, they asked him like, where did this plastic sheeting come from? Like all these things he bought and they, they're they like going through a list of things like, why did you have this? I was planning on doing some work around the house. Why did you have a knife? Joy wanted the knife. Like like it was very premeditated. There was tons of stuff yeah. he had, but everyone he like pushed off. But to say Joy wanted the knife just sent me into a crazy rage. Also, lots of people kill people and then rent cars, which makes me really not want to drive into a rental. That just seems like yeah. your percentage of driving around with somebody that's dead based on all of our episodes, you only get a 50-50 shot. Yeah. Or at least yeah, some kind of crime has been committed. But sometimes rentals just feel more comfortable. So I'll keep doing it. Yeah. So, <laughs> so uh, Mary Jane brought this up, and I agree. Why did he build this stone structure? Like that actually brought more attention to the whole thing. Like, what was the yeah? What was behind that? Somebody might have smelled the decomposition, but could have really thought it was an animal, maybe. But you have this structure there, like that's going to bring attention. I mean, I guess the whole idea though is that like you have these like hundreds of pounds of rocks on top of this body, and that like no one's going to bother to move them. Yeah, that's true. I, I guess. guess that's that's like the only thing I could really think about why he would do that. Yeah, it it's just so weird, like to have that much, you know, there when there's when everything else is like out of place and very deserty and everything, and then you've got this place where it's all like a little structure. I, I don't get it. So the prosecution yeah. now had to prove that this was not self defense, but cold blooded murder. The prosecution would use the brutal acts after Joy's death to conceal her identity and the fact that on September 13th, 2003, the defendant bought, as I was talking about, a hacksaw, a shovel, a pickaxe, a chisel, a sledgehammer, a butcher knife, gloves, duct tape, two padlocks, 75 yards of rope, and 50 feet of chain. So this was what the prosecution said was evidence of a calculated and planned murder. Like... How can you, but everything on that list, they would ask him and he literally had a thing for every one of them. And everybody was like, yeah, no, that guy was not a handy guy. Like that guy didn't paint. That guy didn't do any of this yeah. stuff. He didn't need any of that No, stuff. there was no yeah. reason, but he was like, I was working on this project and this. I don't know why that just irritated me even more. So the prosecution had another witness to testify to the premeditation. And that was Sean's first wife named Sheila. Much of what Sean and Sheila discussed was not included in the trial because of spousal privilege, but she did testify in court that Goff told her to take the boys out of town that weekend so he could end the relationship with Joy. Sheila returned home before Sean and noticed all the blood spatter in Joy's room and bathroom. She called Sean to find out what happened, and Sean simply told her that he and Joy had broken up and she hadn't taken it well and to please clean up the blood. What? 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 Like, that's, first of all, your problem, but also, like, 
what does it mean that she didn't take it well? Like that, <laughs> that doesn't really compute. Yeah. Those two things don't go so together. So she didn't take it well and there's blood everywhere. So yeah, I would be asking so many more follow-up questions to that. Yeah, I, yeah, I, yeah, I, I don't get it. But I think that goes with the kind of control he had or tried to have over these women that she would kind of do it. So Sheila said he returned home from the weekend in a dirty rented pickup truck and said that he took Joy to Arizona to, quote, drop her off. So Sheila did think this was really strange and his explanation didn't sit well with her, but being the good and obedient wife she was, she did not question him at the time. Also, I would imagine it would feel kind of dangerous to question him at that time. Yeah. Seems like you could be in danger. So Sheila and Sean were later divorced and it was Sheila that convinced Sean to turn himself in. So he must have confessed really to her that he had done this. So good for Sheila to convince him to do this because it really didn't make sense that he would go and do this on his own and not tell the whole story. So on July 27th, 2006, Sean Goff was convicted of first-degree murder for the murder of Joy Risker. He received 26 years to life in state prison. Well, thank goodness for that. I know. And his interview with uh, Keith Morrison and stuff, it was just so creepy, wasn't it? Just... Well, it was. And the whole thing, and I don't know, whenever you, they had the footage of him in court and on the stand, and they even had on the dateline, they had spoke to some of the jurors and stuff, and they were like, they could see right through him, you know, in his story. And he was up there like fake crying. And they said, you know, yeah, he was doing all the motions of like being emotional, but he had no tears. And it was obviously all an act. And, um, you know, it was really sickening watching him talk about how, uh, she had come at him with a knife and like that she was the one, you know, she was the attacker in the situation and he was just merely defending himself and, you know, and then like you said, dragging her name through the mud and, and alleging that she abused her children and, and all of that. And it's just like, you know, thankfully the jury saw through all of that and I think, can't, you know, convicted him rightfully. Yeah, they also said that his attorney, I can't remember how they worded it exactly, but they're like some days he was like always climbing up this mountain. Like he obviously had a big case here and had a lot of things he had to overcome. They're like some days he almost got to the top of the mountain and other days he didn't. But they were like he really did his best to try and plant reasonable doubt there. But there just wasn't. So I'm very glad he was convicted and I feel terrible for Joy's family just or her friends really because her mom was gone so just sad all the way around so yeah very sad so that was our episode for the week um before we do our last thing before we goes this week we want to tell you guys about a new podcast that we've been listening to called the melanie minot show melanie talks all about what's trending in pop culture and in a young female's mind but in a fun and informative way it's infotainment Melanie offers witty summaries of breaking and trending pop culture and celebrity news. Like a couple of weeks ago, she talked about the guy in the UK who tried to rob a restaurant who was a total Ross Geller lookalike. And I love that one. That one's titled The One Where Ross Robs a Restaurant. And I know lots of you guys are big, big fans of Friends. So there you go. She's perfect for you. So she also shares like funny and personal stories. And she and her bro host chat about everything from relationships to important things like who got voted off The Bachelor this week. And Melanie's background actually includes working as a Hollywood gossip reporter, which is basically my favorite job ever. So you never know what fun and often inspiring guests might pop in. To listen to Melanie's next celebrity guest, check her out on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your pods. That's the Melanie Minot Show podcast. And Minot is M-I-N-E-A-U. 
All right. So for our last thing before we go this week, I actually um, asked our group. I know Melissa normally takes care of that, but I took the liberty myself this week and I picked the ones we're going to do. AKA you're tired of so, me picking office related ones and you decided to do it I on your own. I am so tired. I've given you a break. <laughs> I get them every week and I stop. I've started ignoring them. Okay. So the first one we're going to talk about. If you were portrayed in a movie, who would you want to play you? And this came from Christy T, of course, in our Facebook group. So, Melissa, who is going to play you in a movie? Um, I think it would be Julia Stiles. I've been told since I was a teenager that I look like that girl from Save the Last Dance. So um, that's really my person, Julia Stiles. She's not in anything I even like. Like she was in Minority, wait, not Minority Report. What's the one with Matt Damon where he does all these spy things? I didn't like it, so I don't even care. Why can't I think I of know. it? You know, I loved her in the season of Dexter that she was okay, in. Okay, that was a really, really good season. I love that. Right after yeah. that, that show went off the deep end. And then she has like some new show on Amazon. She's not doing a whole lot. So I figure she might be bored and would be willing to do a story about me. so you're basing your choice purely because you look like her oh yeah for sure why wouldn't I do that okay (laughs) I thought that was the point of this yeah so for me I would want Sandra Bullock to play me because also if I try really hard I think she might look like me a little bit wait what no (laughs) okay so no but she's also super sassy and I really like her a lot and um I just like her attitude, and I think she has really great movies. I've never met a Sandra Bullock movie I didn't love, so I want her to play me. Please play me, Sandra. What the heck in our (laughs) life are we doing that people are going to even make a movie? They're not. This is a total fantasy. (laughs) Now, I don't think anybody is – well, people say sometimes about me, Chris and Belle, hold on, let me finish. She's five foot tall, but she's a little spunky, and I feel like I'm a little bit spunky. I can be spunky, and um, Mm. I'm spunky. (laughs) I feel like the second you have to scream, I'm spunky, maybe you're not as spunky as you think you are. <laughs> I'm tired a lot. Is that one thing of Kristen Bell's? I just love her. So if we're doing not people that look like us, if we're doing people that we just like, then that would be my cho- choice. That's fair. Okay. That is fair. Thank you. That's Continue. Totally okay. So the next one comes from Patty C. And she wants to know what advice we would give our younger selves. Oh, man. I feel like I have to be serious about this one. Don't you have to be serious? I mean... I feel like it should be playing that song from Vitamin C that everybody had at their graduation in the year 2000. (laughs) (laughs) Or a Brad Paisley song. Um, Okay. Do you want to go first or do you want me to go first? Um, I can go first while you think, I guess. I don't really have a great answer either, though, because I feel like I... Even if I were to go back and give myself advice, I feel like I still wouldn't follow it. So um, I feel like that's kind of where I'm at. I guess I would be mostly like, you know, I feel like it sounds very stereotypical, but just stop caring what other people think about you. Like that's, I mean, it sounds very, you know, what's the word? It sounds kind of trite, I guess, but like it's true. You know, whenever you're younger, you always think that like what people think about you is like the most important thing and you want everybody to like you. And I guess now that I'm older, I'm just like, I don't really care if people like me that much. Yeah. Like, good for you if you don't, because I don't really want that many friends. Yikes. So yeah, <laughs> don't care what people think about you. <laughs> no, that's a really good one. That one's true. And I totally um, 
I hated being tall when I was young. That was like the worst thing that ever happened to me. Just being born tall was awful. But I cared so much what people thought about me and I worried so much. So if I had a friend that like I thought was upset with me, it would kill me. And then you know of a recent thing where this happened to me a couple years ago, Mandy, where this sort of situation happened and my natural instinct would be like to apologize a thousand times and be like, I have to make this right. I didn't even know I did anything. You know the story. Um, I really didn't do anything. And uh, not just me like pushing that off, but like somebody was mad at me for a literal month and I had no idea. And whenever I found out, I apologized, but it was still weird. And then I was like, you know what? I don't need this. Like, I don't need to worry about what other people think of me. Same idea. Like you just, when you're younger, maybe you just have a lot of time too. Like what else was going on in my life that I could just not be worried about people for hours at a time? And uh, I went to a therapist once who was like, what makes you, this is like probably bad therapy, but he was like, what makes you so important that you think people are spending all their time thinking about you? (laughs) But it worked for me. I'm like, you know what? I'm not that great. You're right. Nobody's thinking about me, which could have had the opposite effect on some people. Yeah. That is terrible, terrible, terrible therapy. It's totally true though. I'm like, do I really think these people are so important and thinking about me all the time? Come on, get over yourself, Melissa. And it worked for me. I don't advise that for everyone. But yeah, go back and say like, and and life gets easier. I love being 30. I'm not 30, but I love being in my 30s. It's so much better. I hated my 20s. My teens were terrible. But until like 30, I was pretty miserable all around. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, no. And I think my other one for myself would be to let things roll off your back. You know, like don't get so upset about things that are not really that big of a deal. Um, and I feel like that's something that you do get with age more. Like you can kind of, you know, you kind of can understand like, okay, is this going to matter like tomorrow? Is it going to matter next week? Is it going to matter, you know, next year? Am I, is this going to be important? Like, and if not, then it's not that big of a deal, you know, and don't get upset about it. Don't get worked up about it and let it ruin your day. And, and, and then, you know, lash out at other people over stuff that is upsetting you like in that moment, because probably is not going to be that big of a deal, you know, if you just wait five minutes. Yeah. Well, and some things work themselves out. So I would worry about things so far in advance and to be like, well, you know, three months from now, this horrible thing is going to happen. And either I would forget about it or it just wouldn't happen, but I had spent so much energy on it. So I think a lot of that's just being young and you haven't lived through enough life and been miserable enough yet to realize <laughs> some things. Yeah. <laughs> it's going to get a lot worse before it gets better. So <laughs> that's terrible advice yeah. also. And that same therapist probably told me that. <laughs> <laughs> All right, Melissa. All right, Mandy. Have a great week, guys. I will see you all next week. <laughs> Bye. Thanks so much for listening to the Moms and Murder podcast. Make sure to check back with us next week for a new episode. You can also find us at momsandmurder.com where you can connect with us via social media. Please make sure you subscribe and give us five stars because giving us four stars would be a crime. Thanks so much.